welcome to Cannon Fodder, a behind-the-scenes look at the Glass Cannon Podcast. Rise and shine, campers. It is cold out there today. Welcome back to Cannon Fodder. My name's Joe O'Brien. And I'm Troy, the tired in the valley, and it's cold out there every day, Joe. <laughs> what is this, Miami Beach? <laughs> oh my God, Joe. What time? Let's see. It is about 6.45 a.m. right now. Uh, episode 128 just came out a few hours ago. I haven't had a chance to read people's responses to this episode, but this is literally our only opportunity to record Cannon Fodder this week in this new life that we have. It is bordering on absurd. The only time that we can record Cannon Fodder is 6.30 in the morning. I haven't even <laughs> Which had obviously coffee. means... Yeah, which obviously means our energy levels are fantastic. It's going to be a nice, long, slow slog, good buddy, as we wake each other up. But no, 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 I'm, I'm excited for it. I mean, I hear you do your best work early in the morning. I mean, that's what farmers say, right? Yeah, sure. Sure, why not? <laughs> oh, man. Well, as you said, we haven't had uh, the time that we normally get to really look and dig into what people are saying about the episode. because, And it's such a shame, too, because it is a big one. Yeah. This is obviously a very, very big one for us. And not only for uh, the listeners in general, but just as a session. It was a very intense session for us. Carried a lot of weight. And uh, and we have a lot to talk about today, man. We I want to talk about the life and death of Atena. I want to talk about the return of Feyraza. Oh, I want to yeah. talk about the death of Umlo. And, of course, the inevitable TPK that's coming in episode 129. <laughs> All of these things need to be covered today. Uh, but first, I just want to say, once again, a huge thank you to everybody that turned out for... Our Extra Life fundraiser last week. How amazing was that? Uh, through the Twitch. It was just an incredible experience all around. So many people turned out to watch. I mean, you had an absurd amount of people watching your Call of, uh, Call of Duty World War II stream, right? Dude, back in our Dark Souls 3 Twitch days, we were happy when we got like 40 people. At one point, I had like 675 people watching the <laughs> Call of Duty stream, which is insane. And I was terrible. I was dying like every five seconds, but they were loving it. I was it. out and about, and I couldn't really see what was happening in the game. I was just reading the comments. So I just kind of closed down the video and was reading the comments and trying to respond to people and engage and stuff and all i kept seeing were comments that were like troy troy you can't troy you have to work harder at this. <laughs> and i just kept seeing like oh somebody said something that was just great it was like it seems like his only weakness is bullets <laughs> <laughs> i was playing on hardened but i mean what a great weekend all around the fact that we we made it through the 24 hours without skipping a beat we ended up raising uh well over five thousand dollars i mean it was just I, it's I tell amazing. You, man, Donations it's a, came in after it was all over, too. Yeah, yeah. It's the strength of GCP Nation, man. I, we, should, we should not be surprised by this. Yeah, so just once again, a, a hearty thank you to all of you that turned out, and especially those that, that donated to a great cause. It was a pleasure to be a part of it, and a thank you to Paizo for... Uh, giving us a kick in the butt to get this moving and uh, putting us on their team and everything. It was it was really fun, and I cannot... I actually am really already looking forward to it next year. Yeah, I mean, next year, if we put a, a more than like two weeks of planning into it, we could raise even more. All right, man. We have a lot to cover, and not, yes. not a lot of time to cover it here. Um, this episode, obviously, it starts off... We're already rolling on this, this roller coaster con- to continue that metaphor that we've been using, and now it is hurtling. It is going top speed. It is going breakneck <laughs> speed around every curve, and I... And I worry that it might be 
derailing just 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 a little bit. I mean, we have a major character death already, and as far as I'm concerned, we haven't even seen the two bosses of this book yet that we have been expecting to see. Mm-hmm. Troy, are you concerned that this thing is going to completely fly off the rails and never get back under your control? Nope. Nope. <laughs> I mean, to me at this point, I think a TPK would be really fun and cool. <laughs> and uh, if you guys don't want that to happen, you better get your shit together. <laughs> yeah, we better get our shit together. Okay, I want to talk about the life and death of Etena mm. to start off here. This is a character who we meet in episode 105 and who over time, obviously we didn't. she wasn't in nearly every episode, but over time I think it, it has shown that you've grown a certain attachment to her and really kind of seeing her perspective on this whole situation you kind of grew to, and it came out in your tone in Cannon Fodder as well, that you were like, well, no, well, you guys lied to her. You guys told her you didn't have the hammer, and she knows that the hammer's here, uh-huh. and, and yada, yada, yada. And so I just wonder, kind of in general, if you could comment on uh, how often this happens to you, that you get kind of connected to the enemies in a way. And I, I mean, I know it's happened with a Wigga in the past. Uh-huh. So is this a, a, a strength of role-playing story? Is it a weakness? How do you uh, deal with, with getting connected to characters? Like this. Well, I mean, I'd say the easy way to answer that is twofold. One, like a villain should never be played as if they're evil. Do you know what I mean? It's not the villain doesn't know they're evil. The villain knows that they're trying to do the things that they think is best for them. You know, if they're very selfish, then that's what they're really concerned with is doing things that are best from them. But I think it humanizes uh, these quote unquote bad guys to give them. Uh, you know, deeper reasons for why they're doing these things. And um, I think anytime, if we treat life and death too uh, carelessly on the show, you know what I mean? Even with, with, you know, these, with with mindless creatures that you just kill, you you know, there should be an element of feeling bad for that too. I don't think anybody feels bad for the Orem Vorax, but they should. Um, But like with the Tenna, (laughs) this is a a woman that, that spent her entire life trying to figure this out um but she let her uh you know arrogance get the best of her when the forge was finally lit because she thought you were lying to her at the same time like i knew all along that she most likely was going to turn on you so i never wanted to play her as uh you know in a way that would make you guys completely not trust her i mean most of you didn't trust her you sir will certainly didn't trust her baron was like i'm gonna keep a gun on a on a antenna here i don't trust her but i mean I i had to make sure that the whole time i was playing her in a way that you weren't quite sure what side of the she was on so that when she finally did turn you were like ah, god we should have just killed her when we knew we had the chance yeah and i was not on top of her the whole way i definitely no. trusted her in the very beginning i thought that she was an enemy of orathash you know enemy of my enemy is my friend sort of idea and i liked that strategy of storytelling and it made sir will amenable to going out and getting these things in the first place it was really when we got back and the reality started to sink in and she started to kind of sh- move and shake who w- were the scions that i was like wait a minute i think i've been fed a line of bs here and and really started to turn on her but in the beginning the way you cast her the way that you made her an enemy of orathash I think that's a great storytelling idea is you have these these two opposing enemies. Let the PCs decide who they kind of want to side with, but they're both still enemies. Yeah. 
I mean, that was a big thing, too, is siding, putting her against Orathash, because then it immediately gave you guys a reason to kind of, all right, I'm going to hear her out. If she's against yeah. Orathash, we're against Orathash. We, we must be friends. What did you think of her ending? The, the, the epic stone-shaped spell from Feyraza and, uh, and then getting kind of trapped in there, not really getting off any of her great powers, uh, <sighs> Baron saving on the, on the spells. Were you frustrated by that? Did you want to see something else come out of her ending? Well, I mean, it was a brilliant uh, combination of moves by Matthew to get to that point, so I was happy for him. Um, but it was just another case of having this really cool creature that could do a lot of cool stuff that I just didn't get a chance to do. Um, you know, she the DCs of her spells were not as high as I would have liked them to be and I didn't want to falsely boost them because I knew things were already tough as they were but she tried to get off two pretty badass spells against Baron he passed both of them um and then you know that Warhammer does crazy damage and all I got to use it on was birds (laughs) it was eagles um so I mean yes it's a sad end for her but uh I'm more sad that I didn't get to like bestow curse upon one of you (laughs) Oh, man. Oh, that was what it was? That was one of them. And, I mean, it was going to be bad. Yeah, those are so vicious, Mm -hmm. especially without a cleric. Yeah, without a cleric. I mean, one of the things... And going into what's coming up with these combats. Yeah, one of the suggestions for Bestow Curse is every time a character acts, it's a 50% chance they can't act. Oh, my That's one of the curses that they just suggest to you. Minus six to an ability score. I mean, I had something that was going to be really, really horrible and maybe make one of the players leave our game. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so speaking of curses, this is not a mechanical curse. This is really just more of a a life curse. Poor Umlo. Umlo (sighs) seemed to have a cursed existence from the beginning, and you even allude to it in the beginning of this episode Mm -hmm. with the Umlo flashback and his... The premonition that uh, the Oracle has that he is going to possibly get used and abused by by the very people that are here to to save him. Mm -hmm. Uh, And what what predestination you you had in mind here or or did you have it in mind? I guess that's my first question. Not did you have it, you know, planning it well in advance, but going into this session where Umlo was at, knowing the powers of these slag creatures with their blades did you foresee an Umlo death in this session for us? Um, to be honest, I did not want Umlo to die. I, I, I really felt like he had there was more of his story to tell. And in fact, I had a really cool idea uh, for something that I wanted to do with him at the uh, end of this book. Um, and it just didn't the the dice didn't didn't fall that way. Um, but I I knew that he was down to like 20 something hit points and I wanted to make sure I gave him a flashback in the event that this did happen. But I'm at the point now, especially with this gauntlet of encounters that we're going through that I have sort of these, uh, for lack of a better word, contingency plans for every character's death so that there is meaning in each death. Because now, like, Umlo died in the first round of this combat by one of the ads. And that seems so, like, shitty after, like... You know, Umlo has been in a part of the podcast longer than Gormley. 
Isn't that crazy wow. to think about yeah, that? that is crazy. And, you know, I, I just, I want, I, I want his death to have meaning. If, if someone goes down next week or the week after, I want that to have meaning as well. But like, you know, like you said in the episode, I was like, I feel really sad. You're like, there is no time to feel sad. And in the same uh, vein, there's no time to really give that meaning just yet. But, but, but it will come. And I think at least providing this flashback, uh, now looking back, it seemed like a, a really good idea. At least you got a, a chance to see more of the struggles that Umlo went through. I mean, just very, very sad situation all around. Yeah, and I think in general, I don't really want to go into an in-memoriam here on Umlo because as far as I'm concerned, Umlo's story isn't over yet. It is, you know... I don't know that Umlo is going to magically come back to life through some power of the <laughs> forge or some end of book four miracle that they have in store for any possible PCs who die. Perhaps somebody is able to cast resurrection or something like that. I'm not only talking about that. I'm talking about even if he bodily never comes back to life, there are still things not only to learn about Umlo, but that that his death is going to impact the characters that survive this story in a very serious way. And so I don't really want to get into it now because uh, it, it has to play itself out in our game. There is still more to come on that. So let me just ask you then in general, as a GM, obviously we saw what happened in this scenario and, and, and what you did, but what would you advise GMs to do in general if they have a major character death, maybe even a PC death in the first rounds of what you know is going to be a long haul combat? Uh, I mean, hopefully you're at a point with your players where you can, everyone understands that like, we're going to deal with this, but we've got to keep this train moving. We got to keep the reality of the scene moving and, and and we'll, we'll deal with this. We're not going to let this just go. Um, but then in terms of a mechanical standpoint, like what if they have, they don't have another character to play. Like Umlo was a, a fifth PC that you guys were sharing. Like, you know, what if Sir, Sir Will went down? You're going to play just footless Lork. <laughs> right. Now, like, you know, I mean, I, I guess all of you kind of have backups at this point. But, all right, Baron. Baron's a great example. If Baron goes down in the first round of the combat, what the hell is Grant going to do for the next hour? Um, I think you're just going to kind of let it happen you know what i mean like if if baron had went down i i i i trust that grant would have stayed engaged and like been kind of like a sideline commentator for the rest of the uh uh show just kind of keeping everyone's morale up as best as he could as grant um but you know i i don't think it's fair to be like well let me just uh, throw a new character in real quick that you can play now your character died we'll we'll deal with this next week maybe (laughs) you said you haven't had a lot of time yet to look at the comments from this week and I was wondering if we were going to see a lot of people that were not not pissed at you about Umlo dying. I, I really don't expect that. But I wonder if you feel right now as a GM, and I think a lot of GMs out there struggle with this when they're, they're up against major character death. Do you feel pressure to, to ease off the gas a little bit now because something like this happened? Do you feel uh, nervous or not nervous? That's not the right word, but guilty in, in any way? Or do you feel like this is completely cool and you're doing the right thing? And, and are you totally confident in your, in your choices here? Yeah, I'm totally confident in my choices. Um, it's not that I don't feel bad or I won't feel bad, especially if one of you guys uh, goes. Um, that's kind of my goal right now is to take you guys out. I really want to play this game at a different level. I think I've been um, 
I've been soft on you at times in Minderhall's Valley um, in the interest of the podcast and whatnot, and not by like fudging roles, but like maybe by not going all out on attacks and stuff like that. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to do that for this. I'm really coming at you, and I want to see if you guys can defend yourself. I mean, there are GM styles out there that are like this. It's like I am presenting an obstacle for you guys. Yeah. Beat me. Show me what you got, and that's what I'm. I'm I really want to do with you, with you guys. And if you don't win, that's part of the game. You know what I mean? And 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 I know people are going to be sad. Uh, I'm sure people, even though there were varying uh, degrees of love and hate for Umlo, I think people are going to be really sad by Umlo's death. Um, but if I have my way, I will literally kill every last one of you in this <laughs> thing, and then we'll see where the story goes from there. I think it'll be fun uh, if that happens. And I mean, as you said at the beginning of, of Fodder, like this is just like the start of uh, more shit to be piled on top of this. Yeah. Well, we see the return of Feyraza in this episode, which was so exciting for me. Yeah. Obviously, this is the tease that we get with the stone giant outside with feathers uh, uh, lying around. And in comes a swarm of eagles, which was such a fun image and a great idea. Just if you could quickly give me a little behind the scenes on that. I honestly still have not talked to Matthew about it. I haven't talked <laughs> to you about it. And I'm just wondering, how long have you guys been talking about this? Uh, is this something that... It, did, did Matthew tell you a long time ago that he wanted to come in on this combat? Or did you suggest it? How did the idea come to life? You know, I think it was probably sometime shortly after we recorded episode 100 when he made the decision to pull Firaza out of there. Because like I said, like Firaza could have easily been captured and put in the cages as well. But he, in that moment, decided to get out of there when Lork was having his feet smashed in. Um and Pembroke was almost pounded to death. Uh, so the only thing he said to me is like, how cool would it be if she just like came in as a flock of eagles at some point? And that was the end of the discussion. And then, uh, you know, over the past 20 or so weeks, I've, I've always, I've texted him like in the middle of the day, and like, hey, so what's Farisa up to? What is she, what's going on with her? And if you listen back to the episodes, there are little moments where Faraz is there, but you guys did, didn't pick up didn't on pick any up on of it. it. Yep, it could be like coming out of the cave and a flock of eagles just takes off. Oh, that was wow. Verazzo, watching you guys, waiting, trying to see like, are these people good people? Because she didn't know you. Uh, can they be trusted? Are they part of the reason why she's there? And, you know, as you get to know more about Verizon, although I'll try to kill her next week, too. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you'll you'll be able to see a little bit more uh, as to who she really is because we've only seen her in one episode. So I just had that idea. Once he said flock of eagles, I said, final encounter, somewhere in there, I'm going to have her just come bursting in as a flock of eagles. And then it was last week, I just had that idea in the moment to have the dead stone giant outside uh, just to give a little more foreshadowing that yeah. Faraz is coming. Yeah, I think a lot of the listeners picked up on that based on the uh, th- that hint. I didn't pick up on it in the session, but I'm an <laughs> idiot with those things. I never never pick up on that stuff. But, uh, but yeah, that was great by you and Matthew. Well done. Well, we managed to survive the battle. Much more wounded than I expected for, for so, you know, what was supposed to be kind of the setup combat. Well, the second setup combat <laughs> before <laughs> this Orathosh fight that is obviously inevitable. Um, you know, the, the real boss of book four, not even counting Brander, who's a fake boss of book four <laughs> that we've made up, <laughs> that Skid made up. Uh, as a GM, I just want to ask you how, how are you preparing for this, this next session where I know you say you want to kill everybody, and I understand that, and and I appreciate that. 
<laughs> how are you preparing as a GM for a session where actually this is a legitimate concern, where p- character death and maybe even a TPK is really happening? Do you prepare alternate things, or are you just preparing... Uh, your monsters to the best of your ability to try to put up the best combat. And if the TPK happens, we'll just, you know, finish out the episode, close down the recording, and then decide to do uh, what to do after. Or are you preparing alternate ideas and options for what to do with maybe time that you might have in the <laughs> session after a TPK? Yeah, so I, I'm I'm doing a little bit of everything. I'm, I'm preparing... Um my monsters to the best of their ability. Now, don't forget, you do have the option just to lay down your weapons and surrender, and Urathash will give you a clean death. That's true. So you could just do that as well. That would make my work so much easier. <laughs> um, but so I'm preparing them, you know, trying to learn all their abilities as best I can and, and figuring out how to maneuver in this huge room against a ton of ranged combatants is always a big pain in the ass. Um you know, because you guys are on way on the other side of the room, and he's walking in from the front door. So I'm planning that, and then I'm planning uh, things for if every individual PC dies, what to do. Okay. And then my final plan is what to do if all of them die. And so I, I just I have to at this point. So and, you are and, working and on this. You are preparing. A, yeah. these oh yeah, things. you have to. I mean, GMs have to be doing this all the time, unless they're you know they don't have a high death campaign which is totally fine as well you should always be preparing these things especially when you know the tides are uh, definitely against your pcs you want you don't want to just give them layups just so they get through the book you really want to make it hard and if you're truly playing the book the way it's going to the way it's meant to be played uh, there's a good chance that these pcs are going to die so you should have plans uh, in preparation in case that happens yeah i i have seen i've run a, a campaign through to about 14th level 13th level something like that i can't remember where council goes and i i still don't think that at around 10th level that it was as deadly as this campaign and it's because of giants it's because of the giants they're just so they just put out such power damage in in one round that's what gets you somebody like nestor starts off full health totally fine and in one round He's down to 20 hit points and one round away from permadeath if he doesn't fly out of there. Yeah. I, I think what you're going to see happen in, in the final three books is um, monster, you know, because the PCs are very powerful as well. True. Uh, depending on who survives and or the new characters we end up bringing in. Um you're going to see giants go down fast or PCs go down fast. It's going to be one or the other um, because you guys are so powerful. You're going to have uh, the whenever you get the jump on on giants, you're going to have a great chance to just take them out quick. But if your back is up against the wall, I mean, you, you're dealing with times three crits sometimes plus 18 to hit uh, with 2d10 plus 16 damage on a times three crit. I mean, there is going to be, uh, you know, you think, I think Umlo's death is going to usher in a ton of deaths for the rest <laughs> of the campaign. And I, I think that's fun. That gives us a chance to have characters come in and maybe only last four or five episodes. And then you've got to tell their story in that short a time and bring, and then could bring in a totally new character that everybody falls in love with the week after. But I think that's where the show could end up going. And I, I think that'll be fun. Yeah. And, and, and who kicks it all off? But Umlo. He's Poor <laughs> it's the star of the show. <laughs> <laughs> all right, buddy. Let's get into a little <laughs> listener mail. It's time to listen to mail. Gotta get your brain on it. Time to listen to mail. 
All right, this one's coming in from Lauren in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Lauren, longtime listener of the show, attended GCP Live, if I'm not mistaken, in New York. Yes, she did. Yes, Thank she you did. so much for writing in, Lauren, with a really good question. She just got started playing PFS, found a, a nice group of people, but she has found them to be power gamers, which in my brief experiences in PFS is not all that strange. You get people that really know the rules really well and want to min-max their characters to, to fit perfectly uh, so that, as she says, rolling a natural two will still land a hit. <laughs> and she, on the other hand, is trying to build characters based on first their race and class after she comes up with the idea of what uh, of who she wants this character to be. She does not try to maximize the race and class combination and then also, uh, as she continues on, does not try to make everything so that she doesn't really have any inefficiencies as a character when it comes to playing because she feels like that's a little bit more realistic. So she decides to remedy this uh, that she should decide that she should run an AP. However, I worry that people I play with are going to power game and make the experience not fun for me as a GM. How do I encourage players who know a lot more rules than I do to role play more and not be afraid to be inefficient for the sake of good story? Also, kind of couched in here is a question of. Is it tough or difficult to, to role play well in PFS games? So why don't we start with, with that aspect? We've now played a little we've played PFS before, but our PFSs were a little bit more campaignish previously because we've played with the same people all the time and, and we had uh, pretty steady characters. But I just want you to hear your thoughts, Troy, on the idea of role playing in PFS since you brought have brought out Randolph the Great and what you think uh, can be done to in- increase the quality of your role play in such short burst sessions. Yeah, I mean, it's extremely uh, difficult. I think the benefit that we uh, have had and have is that we play with the same group over and over again. But oftentimes in uh, PFS, um, you're playing with strangers and it's already hard to try and role play in that situation. And in a one-off module where you only got four hours to try, by the time you're comfortable with everybody at the table, you only have got an hour left, and now you're in the boss fight, so you don't have time to do any role playing. Right. So it's very, very difficult. What helps with like a Randolph the Great, for example, is he's immediately got a hook right off the bat. Um, you know that his thing is that he's a, a fake magician, and so that's <laughs> always going to give me, in any way I respond to anything, an opportunity to do a little bit of role playing. So I think that's a good op- a good idea to if you're creating a PFS character is create some sort of hook for them. You know, this isn't a long-standing AP. They're going to play their mission. They're going to get their one XP, their one third XP or whatever. Uh, and then they may play with a completely different group uh, of both players and PCs uh, three months later or next week, however often you play. And so if you've immediately got some sort of hook, that's going to help you, uh, at least have some contribution to the role-playing aspect. But I I think you're going to find in a lot of these PFS things with strangers that some people just want to do math and mash and they don't they aren't really interested in talking in the voice of their character or or really role playing them at all in my limited experience in playing at the cons now with strangers uh, I know at PaizoCon for example like there were people who like this guy before combat was like I'm just going to do and he went for five minutes just talking about all the buffs he was going to give to the party and just kept like moving his hands in a circular motion I'm going to cast uh, you know uh, Phantom Steed on everybody I'm going to cast 
chest, da 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 da, so everyone gets a plus one to their sense motive of the day. I'm gonna da 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 da. But he was never talking in the voice of his character. He was just interested in exploiting the, the numbers, and I, and I think that happens a lot in PFS. Yeah, and I think that that is a a style that we should not or at least I have started to feel like it's a style that we have consistently bashed <laughs> on our show. We have, we have. And I have, I've come around on it a little bit, to be honest. I don't think that it's the worst way to play the game, especially after meeting some PFS players uh, that were really good at it and really had a good time doing it. And when you can see people, we've always also said that having fun is the most important thing. The players having fun is the most important thing. And it's however they want to play is, is the way that they should play. And the, uh, to see them work together mechanically to strategize things and, and, and make their builds perfect or bring in the PFS character that exactly fits the mold for the right story at the right time with the right party is, it is power gaming in a way, but it's also it's fun for them and it's something that they want to do and i don't i don't really i'm starting to to grow a little bit in that aspect and and i see the value in that kind of gameplay even though it's not my personal favorite yeah i don't think there's anything wrong with it i certainly have come down harder than anyone on it i think where it gets to be um less savory at least for me is when those same players only want to win all the time and get really really upset when they don't win that's sort of like munchkining we've talked about before that to me that now you're playing against the the spirit of the game i think because now you're ruining the time for the gm and possibly for other people at the table because now the gm doesn't even want to attack you if you're just going to sulk every time you get hit or you know if you're just going to sulk every time you miss you know there's nothing wrong with optimizing your characters but if you're in that same vein just so only really happy when your character hits and really mad when they miss that then you're you're ruining the time for everyone yeah and i have certainly been guilty of that on the show on the record <laughs> many times and it's it's tough uh, for me to to wrap my head around, but I'm trying to to get into that mindset that you have a lot of times. It comes out very clearly in disorganized play as Randolph the Great. Every time you miss, every time things don't go your way, you get frustrated and you you ah, but it's all in good fun and and you always you love that challenge. You like missing. I've never seen somebody who likes missing so much, uh, <laughs> but it is it's an interesting thing that should try to to grow as a player and get yourself into a position to not react so poorly when your optimization does not work out as well as you hoped it would. You have to remember that uh, optimizing is fun, but when the dice don't go your way or the the GM had something planned that you didn't see coming, you got to embrace those challenges and just on to the next, on to the next. Think of the newest way that you can optimize or, 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 or face the situation rather than, yeah, clo- uh, closing down, shutting out, playing on tilt, whatever whatever that may be. For you, so let's talk about uh, Lauren's question about becoming a GM for these people. Let's say mm-hmm. she wants to do more role playing, so she's going to start an AP and GM it. She offers to GM it and says, uh, "Meet some people she likes uh, locally to to bring into the game." But they they know the rules a lot more, and they're kind of kind of maximize their characters. And she doesn't really know how to do that as well. And as a GM, she doesn't think that's going to be as fun. What advice would you give her launching into this this enterprise? Well, I think it can be a benefit sometimes if your players know the rules better than you. I know when I started out, uh, you guys knew the rules better than I did um, and probably still do. Actually, we don't know anything anymore. (laughs) It turns out we know nothing. More than we've ever learned. Uh, But uh, I think it can be a benefit, especially if everybody's playing on the same side. You know what I mean? Like they're not working against her and she's not working against them. Um, 
So I, I think she's going to go through a learning curve where those first few encounters, she's going to spend hours preparing and they're going to mash through them in like three rounds. And that's going to be frustrating. But you'll, you'll learn as you go along. In terms of trying to get those same people to role play, um, that's really, she's got to be the one driving that. And if she sees that one of the players uh, or two of the players seem to be catching on to it more, then encourage that through the use of, you know, if, if they use the bottle cap system or, or like, or give them a little more tension during sessions so it draws the other people out of their shell to be like oh wait I, I want a bottle cap I, wait I want my character to be a little bit more of the focus uh, my character would like to join the conversation you know it's, <laughs> that's gonna anything you can do to incentivize and also just let them know this is a comfortable space we're gonna we're gonna have fun here we're gonna talk in silly voices and we're gonna play pretend together but then you know it, we're, we're, we're not weird people this is just part of the game yeah I think that it's a good point to to think of it as going into a relationship Mm-hmm. If you are building a, a, a game like this, it's it, there's an emotional connection that happens with these players, and there's a lot on the line. You're trying to have a lot of fun by mixing gaming styles, and that can be difficult. And it's not that the challenge is not something that's warranted. It's, it's not worthy of your time. You should definitely try it, even though it's going to be difficult. But just like getting involved in any relationship, you certainly don't want to start off the relationship by trying to change the players, no. by trying to change the way they play and what they do. We talked recently on Cannon Fodder about being a more malleable GM, being able to not to let the players run the game while you bob and weave with, with what they do rather than trying to force them into your style or, or your gaming style. And Lauren, I would I recommend really trying to learn more about their power gaming ways and then just offer those little nuggets of incentive to get them to, to, to role play a little bit more. But if you'd really try to tell them at character creation, like, oh, come on, don't just take an 18 strength and, and do this and that. It, it's just not as fun. They're not going to buy into that exactly. So give them a little bit of freedom early on to power game as they want. And then you kind of bob and weave with it a little bit. Find the good in it rather than just finding the the bad or the frustration in a different style than yours. And also, there's nothing wrong with giving them restrictions at character creation. This is something you started doing a, a while ago when we started Wrath of the Righteous, saying like, no score higher than a 17, no score lower than a 10, or no score higher than an 18 with your racial bonuses, no score lower than a 10. Just making a char- making sure that even with racial bonuses, they can't have an ability score lower than a 10. It's going gonna, it's gonna to slow things down considerably. And as an optimizer, they still have a giant playground in which to optimize but they can't punt on charisma or whatever it may be. Right, yeah, that that element is good to introduce right off the bat. Just set a couple of ground rules, and and setting a ground rule like you can't power game is too vague. Right, right. It's not going to work. But but if you just set a couple uh, ability score restrictions... And the other thing that I did with Curse of the Crimson Throne was I said you had to put one point in a profession. Yeah. Because I, I nobody ever wants to do that. I mean, people in PFS love doing it because it has great mechanics in PFS. In a campaign, the mechanics don't work as well. And you as a GM have to go out of your way to make profession mechanics work a little bit better. But making them, forcing them to spend that skill point, I did it simply because it meant that they had to form a backstory with a character that was making money somehow, that was surviving somehow before this time. They didn't just come out of nowhere ready and geared for adventure. It helps you to to build out the role-playing aspect. And so there's an idea there. But yeah, focusing on the importance of being flexible can't be understated. I totally agree. Great word, flexible. You've got to be flexible. Give and take, 
with them, you know, give them a little bit of what they want, show them a little bit of what you want, and uh, hopefully uh, five years into the campaign, you'll still all hate each other. <laughs> all right, Lauren, thank you so much for writing in. I, I hope we gave you uh, <laughs> some tips that are, that are useful here as, uh, as I leave uh, this session and, and, and try to prepare myself for the coming doom oh, of man. all of our characters and the story we have written thus far, which shall now end... And we'll begin anew, apparently, with all new characters, if this cannon fodder is any evidence as to what Troy has in mind for next week. Yeah, man, you know the only thing better than this week's episode? Uh, next week's episode. <laughs> I have some cool ideas. All right, man, looking forward to it. I will, uh... <laughs> hey, man, it's 7.30 in the morning. Time to start our day. Yeah, enjoy, enjoy work, buddy, because that's where you're heading right now. <laughs> I'm just going to call out sick. Uh, I'm going I'm to go ask some coffee. <laughs> 